Welcome back to The Move, the FOMS version here. Um, uh, I'm Ali Tetrick, joined by, as you know, my beautiful co-host and Olympic medalist and world champion, Mari Holden. And we also have a guest that you all are very familiar with who will be co-hosting. I just called him special Spencer Martin. So we are here to talk about the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift 2024 course preview. And um, we're really excited to have you join us. Mari, where are you? I'm in Hawaii, live from Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> oh, to travel like Mari. Um, I'm coming in here from Atascadero, California. I just rode two eight-hour days to get down here for a gravel event called the Bovine Classic. Very similar to the Tudor Fonds Fama of Swift, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> a couple eight-hour days on the bike have made me um, really tired and very excited to talk about a big bike race coming up next year. Spencer, where are you calling in from? I'm from... Boulder, Colorado. It's freezing cold. We're getting like a foot of snow tonight. I wish I was in Hawaii. I'm very jealous, Mari, um, <laughs> questioning my decision to move from Hawaii to Boulder at the moment. But um, nor normally it's very nice here. It's it's just an early winter storm. Yeah, I think before we get started and dive into this uh, course preview, um, a big shout out to a sponsor, um, which needs no mention, Zwift, the title sponsor of the Tour de France Fama Vec Zwift. Um, we're all very familiar with the product and the brand. Um, and here in central California, it doesn't feel quite like indoor season yet. I'm sure Mari is not riding indoors at this moment, but, um, during this, uh, summer Zwift has been very busy at work and not only investing in women's cycling, but also they are introducing the new smart trainer, the hub, and it's a better value than ever. So for 150. $599. Not only do you get a smart trainer with a pre-installed cassette of your choice for no fuss setup and a one year Zwift subscription, um, you can get free shipping when you enter the code Zwift Hub at checkout. And there's more to do on Zwift than ever besides just watch the Tour de France FOM FX Zwift, watch the FOM. But there's also, we're going to welcome the return of We Do Wednesday. And I'm wearing the We Do Crop Supper Club here uh, sweatshirt. And so Supper Sundays are coming back too. So head to Zwift.com to grab your Zwift Hub. And don't forget that co code Zwift Hub for free shipping. Well, you know, Allie, I'm here in Hawaii and you said that I wouldn't be riding the trainer, which probably would normally be right, but I am going to be riding Zwift on Monday, doing my ride on Monday morning. And uh, Cade Verano at Zwift was super helpful getting me a hub so that I could try it out here and do my weekly ride and not miss it. So I'm excited to give it a try. And uh, it should be really, it should be fun, but it's gonna be very early for me, like a 3.30 in the morning Hawaii time, but couldn't miss it. I'm a Zwift addict, so gotta do it. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Zwift, so we all are. And it's probably snowing in Boulder now, so Spencer probably needs to hop on it for this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, it's, it's Zwift season. I, I kind of can't stress how good of a deal this hub is. I remember, I'm old enough to remember when direct drive trainers were like thousands of dollars. This is unbelievable that it's $5.99. Um, even if they weren't sponsoring the show, I would recommend getting one of these. It's it's a great piece of equipment. Well, Awesome. Should we like talk about this big bike race? The Tour de France Palm of Zwift, the course preview just came out on Wednesday and uh, we've been diving in and geeking out on all the stages. So I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I can run us through. It's, it's eight stages split over, I believe, seven days. Is that right, guys? Because one stage, there's two stages on a single day. Yep, yep they should run it. 
Yeah. And so the big headline is that it starts in not in France in in Hall or sorry, in the Netherlands in Rotterdam. Um, I think this is the first foreign grand apart in TDFM's history. Um, obviously more common in the in the men's race. It kind of feels like the Giro d'Italia is happening in a different country every time they do it, but starts in Rotterdam. I think we can all imagine this this type of course, 124 kilometers flat. Uh, maybe let's pencil in Lorena Webus as the winner right now. And then we have a stage two, pretty interesting. Stage 2A is a 67 kilometer flat stage. I'm curious to see how that's going to play out and how you guys think that's going to play out. That's going to be unbelievably fast. Later in the day, they have a 6.3 kilometer individual time trial. Going to be challenging to, I, I don't know if I was a GC contender, that would be hard to figure out how you meter your efforts through the first part of the day to be fresh for a time trial later. And then the, they go Valkenburg to Liège, which 122 kilometers is going to be very hilly. We don't have the profile or no, we do have the profile. It is very hilly. That's like a very tough region. And then stage five, they finally get into France. Um, a hilly day. I do not have the kilometers on my sheet, so I can't tell you how long that kilometers. is. 150 kilometers. So, and then stage six, 160 kilometers hilly. And then I think the big headline is stages seven and eight are two legitimate mountain stages, like high alpine stages, 167 kilometers on stage seven, finishing on La Grand Bonol. Stage eight, 150 kilometers, finishing up Alpe d'Huez, um, probably the most famous climb in Tour de France history. I believe the first time the women have ever climbed this. I was, Demi Vollering said she'd never even ridden up it, which would make me believe that probably a lot of the women's Peloton hasn't raced up it or ever even ridden up it. So that will be interesting to see how that plays out. It's a very hard climb. I, I would guess maybe the longest climb in TDFM's history. So I'm really curious to see what you guys think about that. Um, before we get into it though, should we do our ad read from one skin? Um, and I think, I think you guys should read this. I think, uh, I'm not the skincare product guru here. Well, you know, Spencer, that's disappointing because I know that Lance and George take very good care of their skin <laughs> They uh, do, and they use one skin as well. And we ride bikes a lot and it can cause a lot of aging and wear and tear in your body. And one skin is an incredible product all in one bottle. And it really helps just create longevity in your skin. I am a huge science dork. So I love this about one skin that it's founded by a team of four female PhD longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. And unlike most skincare products in the market that we're all familiar with, that there's a ton of bottles and different serums and things that you need to use. And this is a simple solution and it works deeper than surface level. And it's designed to promote healthier skin from the inside and out. So for a limited time, our listeners can get 15% off one skin with our code FOMES, F-E-M-M-E-S at oneskin.co. And Mari, you love it. I love it. Yeah, I have to echo what uh, Ali said about one skin. I think that the most important thing is um, creating habit in your skincare regime. So having something that makes it so simple makes it easier for you to follow through and use it all the time, just like you would in your training. You have your process for how you do things. And the more you can make it simplified, the more you're going to stick to it. So I think that starting young and like keeping with it is going to help you get to your goals, which hopefully is everyone over 50 having nice skin. <laughs> so yeah, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a great product and it's easy to use. So it's the best for travel and everything. 
And yeah, one skin's not just for women. Um, and anyone should use it. Spencer, you gotta, you gotta get some, um, it's for everyone that wants to prevent or reverse the signs of aging with a groundbreaking approach. It addresses health at the molecular level, targeting the root cause of aging. So skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. And it's time for you to try it out at a discounted rate. So 15% off with the code FOM, F-E-M-M-E-S at oneskin.co. So once again, 15% off, heck of a deal using the code FOM. And we only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Um, so age healthy with one skin. And for all those miles of doing this week and all the miles I have on tap tomorrow on gravel, I uh, definitely will be using this <laughs> every day. Good luck, Allie. <laughs> I know. I know. Like it, uh, yeah, I'm feeling I'm feeling a little older today after two back to back eight hour rides and then tomorrow, another long one. So one skin's helping me uh, wake up feeling kind of fresh today. <laughs> the one screen and some sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of sunscreen. Um, and so as we kind of dive in and looking at these first couple stages in the Netherlands, um, they do look flat. So we are looking at, like you were saying, who can beat Weebus in a sprint or like Charlotte cool. Um, but also not to be thinking that flat means easy. That's very aggressive. You know, the starts of stage races are always super hectic and fast. And, um, the Netherlands notorious for tiny roads, crosswinds, like there could be a lot of dynamics going on and just a little chaos on that first day. And as we go into stage two, um, 67 kilometers, something interesting to note is 67 kilometers is quick, fast. So very aggressive, but it's so flat. There's not even a QLM point on that course. It so. looks like a pan a pancake. That's like mm -hmm. what the profile looks like. Also, uh, the Netherlands probably are world champions for like how much road furniture can we squeeze into a single country? I would be, I'm stressed. I'm not even racing this 67 Ks. What is that? That's like 40 something miles. Can you imagine how hard this is going to be to navigate all the road furniture? Like what Allie, if you were doing this, would you just try to stay on the front? Like if you're Demi Vollering, are you just on the front basically the whole day to stay out of trouble to like, cause I think like the big risk for her, she's so good. But I think if she's, let's say mid pack, she crashes on stage two or even stage one, that's probably the biggest risk to her at this race. Absolutely. And I think SD works has shown that they're the strongest team um, out there at this moment. And they also have one of the best sprinters on the team. So it's beneficial for the whole team um, being very familiar with that type of racing uh, through all the early season stuff um, that she needs to stay on the front. She has a strong team. They have the opportunity to win the first two stages um, with Weavis. And she has a great team to sit on and protect herself and stay as calm as possible. Um, and I, Mari, I think that's what would, you would tell her as a director or me, just use your team and looking at Rooster and, and these strong riders she has, Kapeki, they're experts at yeah. this type of racing. I mean, I think that she definitely has to stay near the front to keep herself out of trouble. Um, it's like, almost having something to focus on with her team up there is going to be helpful for her. I think the fact that they do have someone they think can win the stage. So riding with her team, her team's already going to be at the front trying to control things as much as they can. And uh, so I, I, I definitely think she's going to be looking to, to stay out of trouble. Um, but it is going to be explosive from the, from the gun on a 67 K race. It's basically like a criterion the whole entire day. Uh, so once they get to the front and are holding their position, 
I think things are going to you know, be better for them for sure. Yeah. And so they have a 67 K race for breakfast and then for their happy hour snack, we go into to stage three that evening. Um, so it's a two stage a day um, to a 6.3 kilometer individual time trial. Um, this has not been happened in the men's Tour de France since 1991. Uh, so a double day, I've done a lot of double days in stage races. I know Mari has, um, pretty normal in women's cycling to have a time trial in the evening or, or vice versa. Um, and, and this course I was looking at it and it's, it's pretty wide open. Um, it doesn't look highly technical and it's 6.3 kilometers as a time trialist to me, that was my specialty, Mari's specialty as well. And I'm like, Ugh, that's just borderline a prologue. <laughs> like it's <laughs> the, the time differences are not going to be as great as they would be if it was a longer individual time trial. Um, and I think Marlon, Marlon Rooster is my, is my go-to pick also of SC works. Yeah. I think Marlon is the, you know, the time trial has to beat there, you know, unless for some reason Chloe is at that race, but, you know, I think Chloe's main ambitions are the Olympics. So I think that that is, you know, nothing you can count on, but, um, but if, if she were there, that's the distance of a pursuiter for sure. Um, so yeah, I, I agree, Ali, the time trial in the afternoon, there's nothing that's going to be super technical or difficult about it. But, um, the fact that you've done an explosive hard effort in the morning, and then you have to kind of regroup for the afternoon time trial is going to be, is going to be a challenge. And, you know, we were talking about it earlier, double days are really difficult. Some people do them better than other people. So, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing that you can look at the overall distance of the day and say, Oh, it's not that hard a day because it's only, you know, 75 K or whatever. Um, but it's actually just the, uh, how hard those efforts are going to be. And then that time, that they're sitting around in between. And then I think the other thing that you have to consider is that after the stage, when you have a, a late and always in the tour, the stages are later. So you're going to have a late afternoon, most likely time trial. I didn't look at the exact start time, but the last people are going to be finishing late and then they're going to have the podium and all that kind of stuff. And then they're going to have to do, you know, their transfer to the next uh, start is, is, uh, I think two and a half hours or something. So they'll probably be transferring that night would be my guess and, and not be doing it in the morning. So I think that you need to think about where that transfer is and that, you know, that kind of stress and movement makes people more tired over time. So, you know, looking at how those are going to affect later stages. Yeah. And I, one thing I did notice that it, the wide openness, because I'm kind of like, so it, it is going to benefit a power rider, like you were saying, like a good pursuiter. Um, and the only two climbs are over overpasses. Um, <laughs> so pretty flat. So, I mean, they're, they're predicting speeds like overall winner at like 50 KPH, um, which is it's hauling. And cause it's not that technical, not that many turns. And I don't know, people might think this is interesting, but I always get asked this, like, what do you eat in between? Because you do this full gas effort and normally a time trial is like you want to eat three hours before, then you want to digest your food. You want to like rest and warm up and it's going to be a tight little turnaround on like what you actually eat. Like normally it'd be like pasta or rice, something really simple. Um, but yeah, you just like went full gas and you have to go full gas again at such a high level. It's, that'll be interesting to see. And, and you could... Go ahead. I was like, I, you could look at this. Like Mari said, it's like, if let's say you don't know cycling that well, you're like 75 K with no Hills. 
easy day. It's like, you guys, can you imagine the lactic acid buildup they're going to have between these two stages? It's like unbelievable. Like a, it's going to be a six minute time trial probably, which sounds easy, but like there's going to be lactic acid coming out of these, out of these ladies' eyes. Like this is going to be miserable. And then you, well, and the you have the transfer in the hard day. And the fact that the morning will be so hard too, because when it's such a short stage, it's going to go explosive the whole entire time versus, you know, a stage that's a little longer where things are drawn out more. So I think that the morning effort is going to be even more intense because of the shortness of it. So it's just going to add up, make some tired legs for that time trial. <laughs> but we get so much racing that day. It'll be so exciting. It'll be interesting how we cover that, Mario, when we're together there. <laughs> That's a very good point. Good Actually, question. I hadn't thought about that. Really <laughs> we get to sleep in, maybe. Uh, and so when we go from the Netherlands to get to France, you got to go through Belgium. So when we look at the next stages, it's like stage of. Four, um, it's basically a mix of Amstel Gold and Liege Bastogne Liege. Like you're doing all these category climbs that are very much inserted into the heartland of the classics, um, which we know Damie Bullering is the queen of the Ardennes, but we're into these really punchy long climbs. And that is, I think stage four looks ridiculously hard. Um, eight categorized climbs and just think of all those typical Belgian sprint like classics riding. So, um, that's going to be a longer transfer, but also I think lends to a very exciting race. It's going to be brutal, <laughs> but brutal in a good way, because we're going to have a lot to talk about. I think there'll be a lot of activity in that, that uh, stage. Um, the women know those Hills very well. And I mean, especially the Demi Volerings and all the, the Dutch, I mean, most of the world tour women know those climbs well. So I think it's going to be exciting. Uh, a lot of, you know, I think that's a stage where you'll get a lot of attacking. Um, you know, just trying to make things difficult for SD Works and see how they handle it. I think Demi Volant, she might have said this on your guys's podcast that this is where she got into cycling. She was on a holiday as a speed skater in the Ardennes and then went for a few training rides and did pretty well. And her boyfriend was like, You should maybe you should <laughs> bike race. And this was like four years ago, not that long Thank ago. Thank God for him, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I we think love she'll, John. John is a sweetheart. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, her interviews were saying how excited she was, obviously, about this start being in the Netherlands and that she's super motivated for it. So, um, yeah, I think it means a lot to her to be back at home. And I, I think as we were talking about, it's very interesting to have the Tour de France be like half outside of <laughs> outside of France. But, you know, it'll be nice for SD Works and for, you know, for her in general being on her home roads. Yeah, to me, I think stage four is where you start to make some solid GC selections, though, because if you have a bad day there, you could have squeaked by the first three days, uh, staying safe, having a good time trial. And then stage four is it's starting where we're going to start seeing selection and then opportunity for a lot of those punchy climbers to really succeed that maybe not be as good on the longer climbs towards the end of the end of the race. But this is going to be a good opportunity and launching pad for like a Lisa Longo Borghini, you know, Cecile Ludwig, uh, riders like that too. So I'm excited for that one. I also think that the first couple of days of the race, normally you would think they can kind of ease into things. And then this would be the first like, you know, real challenge. But with the double day, that adds a whole new dynamic on the first day being flat and fast and probably a bit scary is going to 
coming right off of the Olympics, the way the schedule is, um, I think you're going to start to see where people's motivation or like how that kind of stress from where they peaked either at the Olympics or are trying to peak at the tour. I think you're going to start to see those things really having an effect once you get around this stage four kind of time, because either the stress from everything that they've had will start manifesting around this time of where you have to have that motivation to push harder and really get through these things, or you'll see, um, that's where they'll start to, it'll all start to add up in my opinion, because they start, you know, the double day is going to be brutal. And then they, they come back and have these transfers and then they have this really tough stage here. I think you'll start to see a little separation in people's motivation at this point too, if the tour hasn't been their only focus. Yeah, I think they've managed it well. I heard, you know, when I heard start in the Netherlands, then we slowly go into France. It's like, man, this is going to be what just formulaic for four or five stages. But as you say, stage one, it's going to be really stressful. And they've re they're really like not letting you take it easy at all. Like mm -hmm. stage four, you're already toast from managing the stress of day one and then the double day before. I think they've done a really good job with this. Yeah, then you go into stage five, also very rolling course, five categorized climbs. They're calling it flat, but I'm guessing it's going to be a sprint out of a more diminished peloton, if not a good chance for a break for people that lost time. I don't know. Um, it's pretty bumpy alley. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, they say it's flat in the description, but there yeah. are still five QOM. So, you know, uh, you can't have QOMs on flat, especially in this area. So it's going to be a hard stage. And it was kind of like last year, they had a couple of flat stages where they said, oh, it's flat. And then they turned out to just be super difficult. So I think that, yeah. you know, if you're thinking that this is going to be a rest kind of day for the GCR, I don't think it's going to be so peaceful. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the Emma Norsgaard day where it was supposed to be a sprint they almost caught her charlotte cool was like a second behind her yeah but someone like that could probably do well on this course yeah that yeah. was an exciting stage yeah and then we then we keep on going right like another 160k stage five categories climbs each one and it gets like harder and harder <laughs> So each split yeah. climb gets just progressively more difficult. Um, and fun fact, um, Spencer, how are you at pronouncing names of towns? Oh, man. Johan, this is like his <laughs> source of amusement is me trying to pronounce uh, French towns. <laughs> are you talking about the start of stage six? I don't yeah. know if I can take a crack at that. What is that? It's Remamont. Rem Rem we'll Rem just go with that. Yeah. To Morteau? Morteau. Let's yeah. go with that. But, but you pass through. This is one of the this, the famous parts of this stage as you get to pass through the land of Thibaut Pinot. So hopefully we get to see some some goats and uh, Thibaut Pinot fans along this this course because um, I don't know why I just learned that and people were very excited that we get to pass through his hometown. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful region too. I mean, it's going to be a great day. Um, it's like a very, I think it's kind of an overlooked region of France. It's, it's going to be a beautiful day to watch and pretty exciting racing. I mean, as you say, each climb gets harder. And then this isn't even the quote unquote mountain stage. This is building into the two hardest stages of the race. I think it's also worth noting that, um, that there's a really big transfer after stage five to getting down to there. So yeah. 
that's going to be a, you know, a long evening into the start of a, you know, very, uh, into the start of the three most difficult days. So that'll be interesting to see how people handle that too. Oh man. I guess uh, that's what I always look at is like recovery. You know, I'm like a recovery queen. <laughs> I look at people, where can people like get their recovery and how's this going to work? It's, I don't know if it's the mom in me or something, but I always worry. It's like, Oh God, you know, we have, uh, they're going to have to be driving for five hours or something like that. And how are they going to do it after a stage? So sorry if I keep talking about it, but it's one of the things I always note when I'm looking at a, you know, in a course or like a preview like this, like where are the issues going to be in managing this, you know, getting people from point A to point B. And so I always end up talking about it, but yeah, I, I worry. <laughs> it is a long, I mean, France is a, it's a big country. I think people yeah. don't, you just like, I don't know, how long could that drive be? It is, I think it is going to be like five, a five hour drive after yeah, a hard it's day gonna of be a, It's going to be a long one. Yeah. I used to have a team director that um, his secret race, like in our races, was to be like the first team car to the hotel. <laughs> so like you get like your mechanics that have better like access to hoses. <laughs> you have like better parking. And I will tell you when we were transferring five hours, you'd be like, we can do it in four. And it was the most terrifying experiences. I'd like put me back in the race versus being in this like team car or bus trying to get to the race and beat everybody to the hotel. So maybe he wasn't the best on my recovery for my anxiety there, but <laughs> it is kind of fun. Do these teams all have buses? I've never been to the TDFM. Do you like, or are there going to be teams that are in like sedans or like hatchbacks? And then some teams have buses that they can do the transfer in. I think that most of them have buses by, by this point, especially on the world tour teams. Allie, yeah. have you seen any that don't have any? I, all I world tour, yeah, all world tour teams have buses. And then sometimes in the transfer, when you're a GC rider, you do choose to get in the DS car because it can be a faster, you know, you can drive a little faster and get to your, usually they have multiple buses because they're ready to be at the hotel getting, you know, mechanics getting set up, swan years getting massage table set up. And so sometimes you two decide, like if you had a podium, and you're waiting, the bus will go ahead with most of the riders. And then when you're on the podium or a GC rider, sometimes you can do a fan, like a faster transfer in the team car. Um, and then there's multiple team cars as well. Um, so there's lots of ways to get riders and staff around. And Mari, wasn't there something that it, it, they changed the rule on the team cars now where we can have, remember that happened that whole, that, yeah, like, mm -hmm. yeah. I so think you can have two now. Yeah. Yep. Okay. It was really bad last year. They only had one team car available or allowed one team car for each team in the tour. And there was just this disaster where a team car is not there to assist a rider because it's just like covering too much space. So we, the UCI did change that ruling and I believe, and that's going to be much more beneficial for each team to have two team cars so they can follow the break, be behind the Peloton, help riders that are off the back needing a, like mechanical assistance, maybe a sticky bottle or two. <laughs> well, what was the point of that? They were just worried about inequality that teams wouldn't be able to afford two team cars. I think that was initially the the thought process because they're trying to grow everything across the board so that, you know, one team can't have all the advantage over others. And now I think that it's gotten to the point where they have the budgets now. And so they can add in the additional team cars. And I think we're going to see that 
as the world tour grows for women is making sure that they're kind of growing it across the board instead of just a couple, because there is still discrepancy, or not discrepancy, but there is still a difference between, you know, the top tier teams in the world tour and the ones who are just barely getting into the world tour, you know? So as those start to equalize a little bit, I think we'll see more of that kind of stuff. Do you guys think that this, like the split day or the, it's an extremely short time trial, as you said, Allie, if you're a time trialist, this is not what you're looking forward to. Is this a way to almost like disrupt SD Works dominance or like put them off balance, uh, add as many variables as possible so that Demi Volerain and Lotto Kopecky and Marlon Rooser can't just stack up like a multi-minute lead in the first few stages? Or is there no way to stop against that? Are they just so good that they'll always win no matter what? I feel like... Yeah, SD Works is definitely the one beat. I don't think it's thrown in there just to, you know, mess with SD Works because it's going to be such a small difference in time. You know, um, maybe it's a chance for another team to try and get a stage win, but I don't think it's going to affect anything in the kind of overall. Um, but it's, I think they really wanted to add a time trial and this was a way to be able to do it. And, uh, you know, Yes, I agree with Allie that it's like a prologue kind of distance. So effect on the overall race is not that big, I don't think. When you look at the time differences of the time trial versus what you're going to get on Alpduas, you know, a second here, a second there is probably yeah. going to be what's going to make the race. But it'll be exciting to watch and it's going to be a challenge for it'll be a it'll make it makes the race more difficult that they have to come back after the morning and do another one and it'll be fun for us to be able to watch and chat about and figure out our logistics but uh <laughs> the overall i don't think it's going to do anything to sd works in my opinion I kind of you know like in men's racing they just shrink these time trials um and and i think that you know men's racing is men's racing i think they should have zagged here i wanted to see like i would love to see like a 50k time trial like just <laughs> blow it out like let like, I don't know, what if Lotto Kopecky had a two-minute advantage on Demi Volering? Like, does that complicate things? Like, it just feels like they're clearly trying to limit the gains you can get in a time trial. Maybe they're worried that a team with a really slippery bike or, you know, someone who can afford an aerodynamist to have on staff would just absolutely crush, like, a lesser budgeted team who can't do that. I, I just, I would think it could be interesting if they were just, like, Let's just go big on the time trial and see if someone can, you know, almost like Miguel Indurain it. Like, can they get a, such a big advantage they could hold it in the mountains in the last two days? I mean, that's a really interesting kind of thought on the whole thing. You know, 50K would be longer than any women's time trial has ever been in the uh, history of stage racing or I, as far as I can remember. Um so it's an interesting idea. I don't know, but I think that might throw it more into SD Works hands than if than keeping it short like this because they have the best time trialists and you may have their whole team stacked at the top. Yeah, you know, they have like a versus, seven minute lead on the next. Yeah, and yeah. then you'd have like five people capable of, you know, doing well in the overall. It would almost look like Yumbo Visma at the, you know, at the Vuelta where you have everyone in the top five is on your team. Uh, and, and that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I, but I do think that you would have a lot of people in the top, you know, part of the race on SD works. And so I think keeping it shorter is not bad, but I, I wish it was longer than six K, but maybe more in the 20 K range and maybe a little bit challenging. 
you know, I, my opinion on why they added the time trial is they felt like they needed to add a time trial. So they decided that this was a good way to do it. And they just threw it in there. I don't think there was that much thought about how it's going to affect SD works or anything like that. My Speaking re- of um, long time trials though, Mari, I'm going to, um, first of all, I want to give a huge shout out to, um, a Italian cyclist. Her name is Vittoria Busey, and she just broke the hour record. First woman to go over 50 KPH for one hour on the track, which is insane. Speaking of long time trials. So huge props to her. She's also a PhD in math. Um, go funded her ride. Yes. I mean, she did a GoFundMe to fund her ride, which is shocking. You know, I mean, that kind of blew me away. Yeah. It, that was just super impressive and, and crazy to see. And she's not on a professional team. She's being a PhD in math, studying it, knowing her physiology, working in like, yeah, self-funding all her aerodynamic um, equipment and what best position for her. So she just overtook Ellen Van Dyke's record, which I think is just very impressive. And I had a fun time trialing and growing up in the bike because <laughs> I love time trialing. And Mari was um, always just my hero and inspiration when I was working on the time trial. And Mari still holds the 40K national uh, record for a time trial. So Mari does like like long time trials. I'm just going to say. <laughs> well, 40K used to be the distance when I yeah. started. I mean, that was the you know, that was more standard, but we didn't ever go over 40 K. And now that you said that Ali, my record's going to be gone. So thanks for like showing that, but I, um, because I just don't do it anymore, <laughs> but you know, 40 K is a great distance and it used to be kind of the standard. And then it, it got more into like Olympics and world championships at that 20 to 20 to 30 K range. But, you know, I could see it coming back up again. What course did you do that on? I did that in Moriarty. It's a fast fast course. And, you know, I was motivated because I had won nationals. It was my first time winning nationals and I didn't get selected to the, or selected to the world championship team. And I was like mad. So I went to Moriarty and decided I'd try and set the record there. (laughs) I also went to Moriarty to try to get that record. (laughs) Fun fact, I got to do the time trial with my grandfather. He loved the Moriarty. He had the the national champ, the record for 80 plus years old. That's that's awesome. (laughs) So that was a fun race. Um, Should we talk about uh, some sponsors or dive into the Alps? I don't know which one's Well, let's, yeah. Well, before we do that, I have a question. I have one retort. If there was a really long time trial, do we think it could like, in, would Chloe Digert would it entice her to focus on this instead of the Olympics? That would be my no. one. No, no, because I, for women still, the Olympics is the, like it's once every four years, it's a real opportunity to, to get something done. And I know for Chloe, she wants to do multiple Olympics. So, you know, and try and get the biggest medal haul that we've had from the U S which is a great, you know, goal. She's, a real, she's amazing. So I can't imagine that anything that they did this year in the tour would affect Chloe's decisions, you know, but maybe next year, you know, if they put one in there, I would say she would absolutely be going for it. And for those that haven't listened, we did have Chloe on the podcast. So (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting. Uh, Yeah. I, yeah, we could do a separate show on this. That's interesting that Mm -hmm the Olympics is still bigger than the TDFMs, at least for someone like Chloe. Um, I would love to talk more about that, but you're right, Allie, let's get into our sponsors and then we'll talk about the Alps and who we think is going to 
who we think this course could uh, could favor. Um, no spoilers. I don't know if anyone can think of a rider that's going to do well on this course. Um, so our first one is HVMN. HVMN. HVMN launched the world's first drinkable ketones in 2017. Ketone IQ is their latest innovation on ketones with improved effectiveness, taste, and cost. It delivers clean fuel that can cross the blood-brain barrier, supplying your brain and body with sustained energy, mental focus, sharpness, putting you in a flow lasting for hours. I, I, uh, as uh, JB always says in his reads, he uses it in in place of coffee. I'm also a coffee head. I wake up early with two young kids. So ketone IQ can, and I do believe it helps me be like more lucid in the morning, less reliant on coffee. Also, if say you're with Dia and Lance and they want to ride at like six in the morning and it's freezing cold and they're going to go really fast out of the gate, you can take a shot of ketone IQ and uh, and feel like you can keep up. So, you know, that's, I, I do think it can help, especially if you don't have time for, I, I get like very obsessed with like properly fueling. I think uh, ketone IQ can really help with uh, like help your body use fuel more efficiently and help you feel more alert. Are you, are you uh, slamming ketone IQs down there in, in Hawaii, Mari? I do like ketone. I do like it for sure. <laughs> Sorry, for this, I need some more your, though, apparently. like <laughs> Your 3 a.m. Zwift ride, you might need it for that. I think I'll be using it for the 3 a.m. Zwift ride for sure. <laughs> and a lot of the pro Peloton uses HDMN and ketones for not only like the energy, but it helps with recovery. And as Mari's been very worried <laughs> uh, about recovery, um, it's important too, to like in between that, you know, double day, you know, get a little boost of energy for your time trial in the evening. Um, also, you know, making sure to stay sharp throughout the day. Um, I'm a huge fan because my focus is very scattered. So any, anything I can take, um, that can help me stay more focused and have that little boost of energy, but retain clarity. I, I highly recommend HDMN. However, I will like, it does has like a very distinct taste and that's totally fine. <laughs> You know, yes. like it's, it's a shot to take the shot. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking maybe they could like, in the team bus, they could be in a, like a hot tub full of it. And then maybe it would just kind of go through their osmosis. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I was so, like, where is he going with that hot tub thing? <laughs> <laughs> just full of ketone IQ. Oh God. You'll feel great when you get there. <laughs> And you can save 30% off your first subscription order of Ketone IQ at hvmn.com slash the move. Again, hvnm.com slash the move. Subscribe upon checkout for your 30% off. So do we want to talk about the two? The, I think these two Alpine stages, Allie, do you want to talk about these? These are probably the big differentiators between this, the 2024 TDFMs and the ones we saw in 2022 and 23. I mean, these are extremely difficult high mountain stages. Oh yeah, we are headed into the Alps and Pyrenees are great, everything, but the Alps are quintessential Tour de France Femme. Like it, it, they're just quintessential tour, right? And so these stages are ridiculously hard, not to mention our first day in the Alps um, from Champenol to Le Grand Bernard um, is 167K. It's actually our longest stage of the entire race. And you're going into the Alps with five categorized climbs, uh, like a 12K climb at 5.1%, the Col de la Croix de la Serra. Um, and that's just one of them. Like this is hard climbs. And then you go right, stay in the Alps again and do another 150K, which we'll get into there, um, which is going to be our queen stage. But both of these are, are where we're going to find our climbers and our GC riders really start to shine and, and battle it out. 
I mean, yeah, when, you to... look at the, when you look oh, at the finish though of the lap of stage five or not stage five, stage seven, sorry. <laughs> um, you look at those final two QOMs and it's basically one long climb. It's just broken up. The first one is it, you know, as a 5k climb, the second one is a 7k climb. So it's actually, you know, it's more of a long climb with a sprint in, in the middle of it than it is two separate climbs with a descent in the middle, like you would normally traditionally think of a, of a QOM. So the, you know, it's finishing on a lot longer climb than you would think. It'd be interesting. Do you think what is, so these riders, what are the longest climbs they're doing? You think in like the natural course of a season, like with 30 minutes be the longest climb maybe they would do. No, there's longer climbs where you can train, whether you're, you know, training or just, sorry, doing a race, not just training. Uh, I would say in the Giro, there are probably some long climbs, Um, but these will definitely be the longest, especially with two stages like this back to back. Uh, I don't think there's anything comparable, really. Allie? Yeah, I mean, Extelvio is not as long as some of these. So, I mean, I'm thinking what we've done in the Giro. and just the accumulation of the climbs too. I think if yeah. you're not just looking at one 30 minute climb or a 40 minute climb, you're looking at multiple climbs that that's going to add up in the total hours of the, of this race that are going to be spent going uphill is, is probably the most I've seen in least recent history. Yeah, and the tough thing is six or stage seven, really hard stage summit finish. And then you back it up with stage eight, which is probably harder. It's shorter, 150 K. But you finish up Alpe d'Huez, um, you know, like a really good time up Alpe d'Huez. If you're really cooking, it's like 15 minutes and that's really fast. I mean, this could be like an hour long climb for a lot of these riders. Um, and that's to finish this race. I Like if you're, let's say you guys are trying to win this, the overall, like are you sitting tight basically the whole race and just banking everything on Alpe d'Huez because it is such a difficult climb and so easy to pull out time if you are stronger than the rest? I think, I, okay, yeah, I think you have to be super sharp on stage seven and, and then hope for the best on stage eight, because not only do you have out the West, you also have Legrand Bernard, which is really long. It's a, what is it? It's, it's a very long climb and it's before you go up out the West. So, um, it's 19.7 K at 7.2%. That's before you do out the West. <laughs> that is a long climb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think you have to be sharp both of those days. And then Mari will remind us how much recovery is going to be important between stage seven and eight and the fueling and the power to weight that's needed, but also just the overall fatigue and how this race really builds and escalates to a beautiful finale. And the last two stages are, are just pivotal to in everything in this race, I think. But Spencer, getting back to your question about, you know, how would you ride it if you were wanting to win this thing? I mean, I definitely think that Demi, you know, who is the one we're definitely talking about most, um, will play it safe on the stage seven. And I would think manage things and follow and try not to waste energy more than she has to. And then, you know, if she's feeling good on that last climb, I would say, you know, then maybe you test something out, but the rest of the stage, which is also very hilly, I wouldn't, I can't, I mean, you never know, but I wouldn't imagine her going out attacking and being aggressive on that. I'd say it's more attrition and different selections from the other riders trying to, trying to whittle the group down. Um, but then obviously in that stage, a 
letting her, you know, go, uh, she'll be waiting for that Alptuas climb to actually like let loose. I mean, she'll let other people probably try and break it down. And then, you know, other people will want to get the group smaller on the Glendon and then she'll be able to, you know, take it away on the Alptuas or that would be the hope, right? Yeah. If my memory is correct, that this last one that finished the didn't finish on the tourmaline. That was the second to last stage, but the last mm-hmm. road stage, I believe um, Van Vluten attacked on the second to last climb and Volering followed her. Yep. I'd assume all things. And then she just kind of followed, 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 put like three minutes into, into her yeah. competitors and like four kilometers at the end of the final mm-hmm. climb. I assume she just would have sat tight, as you said, and just rode conservatively to the tourmaline had Van Vluten not been there and Van Vluten won't be there. This well, year. and I think that, you know, that had to do also with Capecchi being in the Jersey at that point too. So, true, you know, she had more reason to hold back, but I think that it's a smart tactic still for how to ride the, the race. Obviously she put in a huge amount of time at the end. So I would, if I was her, try and ride it in a similar fashion and let other people make the race hard, follow all the selections and then, you know, and then make your move more towards the end. Um, Cause she still can get a big, a big gap. You know, I, I think the, the thing that I think might have something that could be an effect is as we talked about earlier with scheduling in the Olympics, having been before is that a lot of the women on SD works will have been a part of the Dutch team there. And if, uh, Volering has to do, you know, the time trial, which I would assume she would want to do if it was possible. Um, that might those that kind of effect might someone like Katja Niemandoma, who uh, may not do an Olympic thing. Maybe she is somebody who can actually be there to challenge a little bit more in the mountains. I mean, it, when you look at who might be her competition in the mountain stages, it's maybe people who are more fresh and could actually prepare perfectly for the tour or, you know, had a little bit different preparation going to the Olympics, which has a huge amount of stress on it too. And you can see what stress does to people. Like when Marlon had a breakdown at the world championships last year, you know, stress has an interesting way of, you know, coming out in people. And so I think certain people deal with those kinds of things better than others. And I think that's going to be, you know, just kind of a, something to keep an eye on during this race, because it could start to show as the fatigue comes out and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, especially since that clearly wasn't a form issue for Marlon because she mm-hmm. came back after that, you know, bit of just a tough spot, I guess you could say mm-hmm. a meltdown, and then wins the European Championships for the time trial like right. a few weeks later. So clearly was physically fine. I hadn't really considered the timing. I do have a question for you guys about that. Um, that it is after the Olympics instead of before, like it normally is, and that could add some stress for. The Dutch, the Dutch women particularly, because they're supposed to be so dominant. Do you what do you think of this move of schedule? I guess they had to do it because the tour, the men's tour is too close to the Olympics to fit in everything and allow people to race the Olympics. Um, it's after the Olympics. It's normally right after the the men's tour de France. Do you like that timing normally, or do you think it allows the race? to kind of get overshadowed where it's just like, Oh, it's just a little amendment on the end of the tour de France. I personally like it because I'm so in the habit of watching racing that I just keep watching. Do you think this move will help the women's race, like kind of stand alone and like be its own thing? Or do you think people will kind of like have forgot, not forgotten about it, but just be like, 
oh yeah, there's still racing going on after the Olympics and the tour. I feel like the momentum that's happened over the last couple of years, building up the women's race is what's going to save that from like, save it from having it disappear or not disappear, but not be as visible after the Olympics, because now there are fans out there. There are people who really want to watch it and see it. So I don't think it's a bad thing for the women's tour. I think if it had happened the first year, it would have been much more difficult. But now I feel like things are moving in the direction where people will keep watching. And after the Olympics, they'll want to see more. So, and the women will be there. Yeah. I think it's, it's all positive. I mean, the, the Tour de France Femme Vegas will have to, I mean, once again, t- uh, sponsor of our, our podcast, but the title sponsor of this race have also just are fully invested in women's cycling and these teams and sponsors showing up and we're garnering fans. Watch the Femme is really actually working. And it's becoming a more sustainable sport. And I think it's also very exciting that we'll most likely have Olympic champions racing in, in the tour. And that's, that's kind of, hasn't happened in a long time. So that's, that's a way where we can get more fans. And I don't know, I'm like, I'm with you, Spencer, like more bike racing to watch the better. Um, so I, just to continue watching the races and, and getting that engagement, um, it's great. And this sport has really grown and grown in fans, followers, and the sponsorship dollars are showing that there is revenue coming back and more like there's a return on their investment into the sport. And we're really inspiring the next generation. And what better way to do that than to have Olympians be racing the Tour de France Femme of X-Lift. I think it's very exciting, like Olympic champions, I assume. Yeah, that uh, yeah, we hope. That's a good point because women's for women's cycling, the Olympics is so big and it people like it kind of pops then. So maybe it can, it can kind of like carry that Olympic momentum afterward and it, it could end up being a better spot for it. Who do you this probably isn't a big uh, cliffhanger? Who do you guys think this course is going to favor amongst the women stars? I, I think no. I mean we've been talking about Amy uh Bouldering, uh this whole time. Um because she's shown her dominance and her growth as an athlete, um, cheering her on. I think you can look at some climbing specialists towards the end. Like we have Guy Riolini, Italian climber that's up and coming. So when the hills get really steep and they get that long, um, some more climber, like climbing specialists, I think, um, can shine there. Uh, and I, I don't want to discount, um, Cassie Neodoma. Um, she's the one that when, uh, Damie and Anamique, attack. They're sitting on playing games. Nia Doma goes down the descent and she's solo off the front. And she also just won, uh, gravel UCI gravel worlds. And she hasn't won a race in so many years, but she's a very dynamic way. She races. She's absolutely beautiful inside and out. Um, and an incredibly exciting racer to watch. And I think with her recent wins here, and then she came and won big sugar gravel race in the U S um, in her world championship stripes, but to see her attacking and very aggressive, passionate style of racing, um, I, and now have a world championship under her belt. I think she's going to have a lot of confidence and really target this race. And it's, it's a rider that I, I see podium again, um, for sure. And a, and a very good competitor for Jamie. I, I mean, I think so too with Kachi because of exactly what you said, her confidence has to be on a high right now. And, and it's really nice to see kind of that breakthrough ride that she had at the, at gravel world championships or UCI gravel world championships. Um, 
because she's always there and she's so close so many times and she's finally made it happen. And I think that when a rider has a breakthrough like that, even though it wasn't necessarily on the road, it it's going to give her that kind of boost to make her feel confident. And I do think Ali, you saying that she's going to focus on this event. That's part of what I was talking about with this whole Olympics right in front of, you know, the tour kind of situation is that someone like Katya, who really probably isn't going to focus on, on the Olympics, in my opinion, she has a real chance at, you know, being one of the biggest competitors to Demi at this race. And I think she's going to go all in on trying to do that. So her preparation can be totally dialed in for this, where um, maybe some of the Dutch women might have to do, you know, the still winning the Olympics is a huge deal for the Netherlands, but kind of they have to figure out how to balance their training to, to have their team goals, which is the tour and their, uh, you know, federation goals or whatever you want to call it for the Netherlands. So I I think it's going to be interesting to see how they manage that. And then, you know, coming into the tour. And, and something to think about too, Lessing, there's probably less stress around the tour happening after the Olympics, considering the Olympics are occurring in Paris. So it's not like they're in Australia or Tokyo. So time zones are going to be the same travel is going to feel very like familiar to most of these riders. So targeting those events and they're one day events, it's one road race, one time trial, like events on the track. Um, like if you're a Capecchi and just want to do everything, (laughs) but it's going to be very familiar. Um, being in Europe and then to go to the tour that transfers and that I think will help recovery and ability to focus on both um, easier more easily. I need, I need some ketones. Because I'm like, I think you and I see it a little bit differently. So that'll be something fun to talk about like, <laughs> when we actually get there, because I, I really think that uh, stress and, um, effects has a much larger effect and it it wouldn't matter if it's France or, I mean, time zones. Yes, that makes a big difference, but the amount of pressure they're going to be putting on themselves for a once in a four year kind of opportunity is massive and watching people come back from that to be able to do something after is going to be very interesting to watch and see how they handle it. Because for the men, when they do the tour de France, they go and do the criteriums afterwards where it doesn't, their the stress is taken out of things and it's kind of more of a show. These women are going to the Olympics and then they're coming straight into the biggest race for the world tour. And, you know, the most important with the most sponsorship and visibility that's peaking for two very, very stressful events in a very short period of time. And we saw a small picture of it when Marlon dealing with going to the women's tour last year to the world championships in the reverse order. So I think we could see some interesting things come out of, out of that kind of dynamic this year. I mean, I would tell her not even to go to the Olympics in Yadoma. I mean, just go oh, yeah. full in huh. on this. Cause it's funny. She used to be a winning machine. Like in 2016, she won almost 10 pro races. Hasn't won a pro road race since 2019. So four seasons. I do think that gravel world's victory, that's got to feel good, right? Your first, like going up against the best in the world, beating them. And if we think about just realistically winning this race is going to take elite, elite, elite watts per kilos. And she's one of the only riders in the world who can compete with Demi Bollering. Yeah, I would, I would, Mari, I agree. I would just like skip the Olympics. Like what is going to differentiate you from these Dutch 
machines. Mm-hmm. Just skip the stress of that. Focus fully Fine. on the tour and go for it. I have one other name for you guys. This might be a little bit of pie in the sky. The climbing might be too much, but what about Kristen Faulkner coming back from injury? Just one is becoming a good time trialist. Like literally didn't know how to time trial until basically like two years ago. Um, she could be an earlier work for her, but yeah. Do you, but do you think it is tough to know because we don't see them race on climbs this long that Mm -hmm. often? Like, I think she had a really good tour of Switzerland like two years ago. I'm curious to see how she does. Cause if I'm looking for someone to beat bowling, like they just have to be a Watts monster. Like you've got to put out so many Watts to beat someone of that level. Like it's just a, a handful of women in the world who could really realistically go up against her. I feel like Kristen Faulkner, she's amazing with, uh, you know, and what she's done in a short period of time. I think that expecting her to, to be able to do stages seven and eight with Wollering is, you know, a little bit, beyond, but I do think that in those middle stages, uh, she would, those are great opportunities for her. And even the time trial, because I think, uh, you know, that length of a time trial could be a real shot for her. And that's probably something she should be trying to focus on. You know, that's a great distance for her and a huge opportunity as far as Americans, you know, if we're looking at the Americans in the tour, I think Veronica Ewers, the final two stages are really great for her. And, you know, last year she had disappointment with crashing and not finishing, but I think she's somebody that we should be paying attention to and watching and could sneak into that top five, possibly top three, depending on how those last two stages are written. And so as, as an American, you know, who am I keeping my eye on? I'm definitely watching Veronica to see what happens. Interesting. That's a good name. Good. Yeah. Good pick there. <laughs> yeah. She's on my list here too. The only, yeah. I had Juliet Labousse on my list. Um, and we already talked about Elisa Longo Bergini. She really can pull out some amazing efforts. I think a lot of the middle stages suit her as well. And we have seen her claw way up some long mountain climbs with Damie. Um, and she can really focus and prepare. Um, she's had some injuries as well. So she'll be motivated to come back. And Faulkner is a Watts monster. She's amazing. She did just win the Pan American Games time trial in her first race back since uh, her injuries. So she'll be motivated. She signed with uh, EF for next year. So a new team. Um, So there's always that opportunity. Um, And really though, I think what comes down to, there's some really, there's some talented riders that could succeed and and put Damie to the test. But the, the one of the, besides Damie's raw talent, she just has the best team in the game. And so with that team, like with that strength around her, um, I think what these other riders are lacking is that strong of a team to support um, until the last couple of days for that. So it's a little bit of an idiotic, provocative question, but is the team too strong? Like, are they, are there too many riders that could potentially win this race on a single team? On I don't think, I think they've done a really good job of, you know, choosing the best at several different, you know, things. And so there's not, Demi's definitely the best climber on their team. Marlon is the time trialist, you know, they, I don't think it's a detriment to their, you know, tactics and stuff. They definitely, they can play a lot of different cards, but they work really well as a team. Um, I, 
yeah, <laughs> it's they're they're amazing. It's so fun to to watch them. I mean, yeah, I wish there were other teams who were you know competing, making it harder on them, but they've definitely you know got a great team. Yeah, they share their wealth really well. Um, target specific races for specific riders um, to the best of their abilities. I think their cohesion is very high. And I, you have this argument on the men's side, and I don't think it like if a team pulls together the best team in the world and everyone's like, it's too strong. I'm like, well, that's your problem. Make a stronger team. Like if you have this machine and it's working and you're elevating these riders to succeed to the best of their abilities and you have the infrastructure, like SD works, doesn't have a men's like, like side, like a Yumbo or, you know, they, they just focus on this women's team and you can see what that investment made for a successful team. That's like basically wins most of the races. And I don't think that's unfair. I think it's just very exciting to watch. And it's a challenge for other teams to, to try to build something similar to compete. Yeah. And I mean, they are, they are helped by the fact that there's just probably just no one on the team that can climb as well as Demi Vollering. So they won't have an intra-team battle, perhaps. Um, I, I do kind of wonder like why Enios doesn't, you know, kind of I would say struggling with the big budget on the men's side. Just go to what is SD Works budget? Double it, start your own team, get some good riders. Like there you go. Then no one's talking about your men's team not winning. I, I'm surprised <laughs> yeah. that doesn't happen more often. Um, it seems like an easy way just to like get the conversation away from uh from something you don't want it to be on because you could probably hire a lot of these sd works writers for not an overwhelming amount of money i would imagine and i mean they are helped by they fish where the fish are right like they're a dutch team right or belgian team but one of those that's where the best probably women's writers are or any writer in the world are from so that gives them a massive built-in advantage right there i would have to imagine that Enios is thinking about this though because they have pauline Ferran Perot. Yeah, yeah. They have like one of the you know, world's best writers. Yeah. And, you know, she made a comment in um, an interview that she would be interested in doing some road racing. So w- when somebody like that says that they're interested in doing some road racing, you have to imagine that the conversation is happening. And, you know, they already have her, they could build a women's team. I would, I would think that that has to be something that they're discussing moving forward because every men's team is going to need a, a women's side team too. Yeah. Or not side team. I don't, that sounds terrible. Women's or, side team. Like a, a you know, a comp- yeah. <laughs> a, a module. I didn't mean, my, yeah. <laughs> Where is my HBN? <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you guys want to go over before, before we take off? No, I think we covered it. We're looking at the Tour de France bomb of X Zwift 2024 covers 946.3 kilometers, two mountain stages, two punchy stages, three flat stages. Those are arguable. And um, one individual time trial, which I'm going to call a prologue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually don't know how they're calling that a time trial. I think it, it's, like, any, by the I letter... think it's like the rules, like five kilometers or less. Is oh, a prologue. Okay. So they, they squeaked in an extra kilometer in there. Point three, 1.3 kilometers <laughs> extra starts on August 12th, 2024. So don't be fooled. Yeah. Don't think it's right after the, the tour de France men's this year. It is later after the Olympics. Yeah. I think it'll be really exciting. And we're Mari and I are going to Spencer, you can join us again. Sorry again for calling you special Spencer. If you need me to redo the intro, <laughs> I'm happy to do so. I got very excited. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but we have a lot of exciting women's racing to cover next year too, leading up into the Olympics. And then of course the Tour de France Palm of X Lift. So All we're right, here well, for you guys. <laughs> thanks guys. Thanks for letting me uh, sub in today. It was fun, fun to join you. Thanks for joining us. Now go enjoy your snow while I go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, not jealous at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right, bye. Bye. bye.